Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 to 8. The Word of God says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he and he said, and also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, O God, just asking as, as we prepare ourselves, Lord God, to meditate on, on what we've just heard, Lord God, as we reflect upon uh, your plan, Lord God, of salvation, Lord God, and how it all accumulates or leads towards this, Lord God. Father, I pray, Lord God, that as we think upon and meditate upon the hope that we have in Jesus, Lord God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, open up our mind's eye, Lord God, to see or have a glimpse, Lord, as John saw in this revelation, Lord God, that this hope, Father God, that you have penned down for our benefit, for, for, our, for our aid, Lord God. Father, I pray that it would spark within us a desire, Lord God, to seek after your glory, Father God, each and every day, Lord God. That we may encourage one another with the hope that we have, Lord God, in the words that we've just read, Father God. <coughs> Father, above all, Father God, I pray that you are glorified. And so I ask so humbly, Lord, that you would remove me, Father God, from the picture. And Lord, I pray that you would glorify yourself. Mm. I ask this so humbly, Lord, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Mm. Um, so tonight I get to uh, wrap things up in terms of this series that we started back uh, maybe a little more than two months ago. Uh, where the topic has been uh, the subject of violence, uh, it's something that we've attempted to kind of deal with. Um, something that obviously, undoubtedly, I think we've all agreed that this is a subject that we might have all felt confident in our understanding that you know violence is a, is a no-no, right? But regardless of of, of all of that, I, I do trust that in our time together, we've we've gone beyond uh, that superficial, surface-level uh, knowledge of, of violence and, and have connected it back with that greater issue that, that we all are bound to in our sinful nature, and that is sin itself. 
That's what it comes from. That's where where it stems from. And though we've been educated from you know, be it from school at a very young age, you know that hitting others is wrong and that violence is never the answer. Though our parents have created barriers within our own psyche to never never cross our, that line, never allow ourselves to kind of show this kind of aggression. All we really have learned from our educators and from our parents who love us, all we really uh, have adopted from them is this uh, ability or a way to mask it or tuck those feelings under the rug. Because when we engage with the Word of God and when we come across the Scriptures, we're exposed to the reality that that Scripture presents to us concerning our sinful nature, those feelings that we feel, right? those feelings that we've learned to tuck away and sweep under the rug. Is what Scripture does is, uh, being that double-edged sword that it is, it brings it to the foreground. It cuts the, the, that, those deceptive thoughts that we have that we think we're good because we don't do certain acts. Scripture just cuts straight to that and says, no, it's not just about what you do in terms of your actions. It goes beyond that. And so we see that Scripture cuts right through to the issue that when we act out in violence against another person, we, we carry within us that, that same fundamental nature uh, that has given rise to the most grotesque and the most violent acts that we have seen throughout history, throughout humanity at large. Those saying that same fundamental, that same nature that possessed men throughout history uh, to act in certain ways like when Abel was murdered by his brother Cain. Or more recently in our history, when we see the slaughtering of, of, of just human beings at the Holocaust as an example. That same nature that gave rise to men to do these things is the exact same sinful nature that we, all of us, possess. Mm-hmm. And that's what Scripture has been uh, revealing to us. We, we've discovered that that same nature that gave rise to that, we possess it in our broken souls. Mm-hmm. That, and that is this sin that we, we carry with us. It is sin because sin is what we are by, by nature. We are sinners. It's this sinfulness that allows us to, to, to raise up a Hitler, to raise up a king. It's this thing that we carry within our souls where, where we see a glimpse of this, like when we are all capable of, of anger, we're all capable of hatred. You know, and not only do we do these things, or not only are we capable of these things, we revel in it. Like we think upon the way we want to always be the one on top that gets on top of everyone else. We, we, we have this mentality where when we get offended, the, the scenarios that run through our minds on how much I want to hurt someone else or uh, how I am going to... The things I would, if, I, if I wasn't a Christian, the things I would say, right? That, that is that same... It's coming from that same sinful nature. We all possess it. By nature, we are sinful. And so it, it, it's when we feed... These sins that leads or breeds to, to that monster within when we become a king or a Hitler. You said that anger and violence is the way in which sinful man, in his frustration, he attempts to control what is beyond him. It's man's foolish attempt to usurp the authority and the sovereignty of God. So man's hatred towards another person or another man fundamentally is really a hatred towards God. 
And it's just manifested in, in these malicious acts <coughs> against man. You know, our violence against man is never really against man, but rather it's really rebelling against a holy and sovereign God. And it's expressed itself in violence against others. So in our attempt to defy God's image in others, we, we, we destroy them. Foolishly thinking, though, that we can get away with that. We think that when we hurt someone or purposely injure them, we create these atrocities that we can get away with them. As though God is not sovereign. As though these things that we do against God's creation and God's people, that we can get away with these things and nothing will happen. They deny and reject not only His sovereignty, but they mock His justice. And that's really what I want to kind of hope. I hope that we can kind of end up on this series is just reflect upon the justice of God. When Christians faithfully proclaim the power and the sovereignty of God, man's response ignorantly points out or poses the question, if God is powerful, then why is there suffering? Why is there evil in this world? And they pose that question to God. They, they say, look, this, this proves two things, or one of two things. Either that God sees what is happening in this world. They see the evil. They see the suffering. They see the pain. But God can't do anything about it. He's not powerful. Man. Or it means that He is powerful. And He sees all this go on. But He just does not care. And in an attempt to kind of... <clears throat> Defend against such claims, defend against such a, a question. Some people, unfortunately, defend it not so wisely. They reduce it down to the bare free will of man, where, where they say, look, it, it, God wants to act. God wants to do something, but God won't violate man's free will. That's utter stupidity. Such arguments, as, as good intentions they may come from, by arguing in such a way, in effect, robs God of His omnipotence and sovereignty. We serve a God who is powerful and is in control. So what does Scripture teach us about the sovereignty, about the power, about the justice of God? Well, when we open up this wonderful book we call the Bible, in Genesis, right at the beginning, it rightly starts with God. And then we run that through all the way down to the end, to, to Revelation, where it rightly ends with God. What does this tell us? It tells us that history, humanity, time, space, everything in creation, everything in between, it's not in an evolutionary process like the secularists argue. Nor is it in this circular motion that everything gets recycled. You know, I might come back as something else. But everything that is was once was. And what once was is, is what is now. Like this, this constant cycle. That's not what the Christian perspective is. The Christian faith comes in and says, no. Everything is leading towards something. It is linear. It is progressive. It's, it's coming up to, to an end. Everything. There is purpose behind all of this. There is purpose behind suffering. There is purpose behind this evil. 
praise God that we have a God who is in control of all these things. All these people want to present these other persuasive arguments. But God is the one who is in control. We see that God presents to us in Scripture that God not only has seen this destructive nature that sin has caused in creation. Not only does He see it now presently as we speak, but that God saw it even before it all happened. And He allowed it to happen for His glory. Before the foundations of the earth, God had already appointed Jesus to be its Redeemer. Implying that he knew that creation would require a savior. In the portion that we get to meditate on tonight, though it will be brief, there is so much here that we can unpack, and I'm trying my best to condense it. We'll kind of consider this hope that we have, this plan of God that, that he has sketched out for us, We'll just do a rough overview of what this glorious plan and hope is that we have as believers. So I want to read verse 1 and 4, or 2-4, once again with you. The Word of God says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned, for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. What a hope we have. It's such a wonderful book, the book of Revelation. It's one that I encourage you, you study. But first, there are a few parameters that I would love to give to you. Just a little, little bit of, kind of like a little, little side note. If you do venture off in studying the book of Revelation, some things to consider before we get into this. Because this is definitely a very image a driven revelation or this this book he uses a lot of imagery so John receives this uh, revelation from God and when we think upon the book of Revelation we immediately switch into autopilot sometimes and we begin to imagine uh, the end of the world the rapture we, we get into all these extra biblical things and and you know we, we, we just go crazy right but I just want to kind of give you some quick uh, guidelines so that we won't fall into those pitfalls where we start off with this like antichrist manhunt where we're like trying to who's the antichrist who's the beast you know where we fall into this where we we start buying water right like like the y2k everyone starts storing up water like all that stuff man like all these people that you hear man jesus is coming that you, you hear people say that they've counted all the verses that are in the bible and that they've created this algorithm that we you know, somehow they crunch the numbers and they've, they've given you, they spit out this date when Jesus is meant to come. Sounds ridiculous, but this has actually happened in history. Um, so it, just to avoid those we, really, really silly things where, you know, we start saying that the Pope is the this and, and, and uh, uh, 
Trump is uh, whoever, you know. <laughs> um, so, so to avoid that, just three simple things um, that that might help you in terms of your 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 reading of this. First of all, this letter is written to a church of John's time. It's just basic, but if you know that, it might help you out a lot. This has to make sense to them first before it can make sense to us. Because otherwise, if it didn't make sense to them, then then why did he send it to them? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, what's the point of that? So now, it, number one is that this was written to the church that is writing to the, to the churches. Secondly, we must believe that we serve a God not of confusion, but a God who chooses <laughs> to reveal his will for us mm-hmm. in an understandable medium, mm-hmm. using language that we can comprehend. Yeah. Yeah. And thirdly, stemming from that previous point, God uses language that he has already used in the Old Testament. And from you look at John, John is drawing from the Old Testament really heavily. Everything is just imagery from the Old Testament that is pointing towards um, a new reality. Uh, you know, so John is just is, is submerged in this in scripture. So these three brief key guidelines will assist you from ending up, you know, from predicting the future. <laughs> and, and so, you know, whatever it is that you're gonna start. Everything is a symbol for something else, eh? and let's let's avoid that. But that is just for you, like a, just a, a quick guideline. Let's get to what we've we've come to do. As we've said, that we carry within us this fundamental corruption mm. that we call sin. We all have it. We all deal with it, and it's spread all throughout of humanity, all throughout creation itself. You know, after the fall of Adam, sin entered and changed the very fabric of this world, the very fabric of who we are as human beings, and. Uh, everything just went downhill from then on, causing us to be sinful by nature. And I want you guys to understand something, that we're not sinful because we sin. We sin because we're sinful. Mm-hmm. And that's so important for us to grasp. It isn't because you do naughty things that, that you become therefore sinful. No, it's you do naughty things because that is your nature. Mm-hmm. You are sinful. So when we read the beginning of this redemptive story, we read that after God would create, you know, in Genesis... We would see and, and we would read that he would say it was good. He would consider it good. Mm. And after he created man, he went even further and said that it was very good. Mm. And yet, after the fall, we read that God changes his perspective or his, his language. And when he refers to man, God speaks differently through the pen of Paul who is actually quoting from Psalms, when he says in Romans, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. We've gone from being considered to, to being very good in Genesis before the fall to no one does good post fall. The effect of sin is grave and grim, to say the least. Now don't misunderstand me what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that that we are incapable of doing good, that we can't do that. Nor am I saying that there's now no value to us. The fact that we still have this image within us, the image of God, we are image bearers, that instills in us value. And that's why there is value to life, to the human life. But that image bearing quality has been marred, it has been tainted. Our sinful nature right now as we are, at this very moment, 
If we were to stand before a holy God, before the throne of God, we could not better stand His presence without being utterly destroyed. Our nature does not permit us to stand before the Holy One. We cannot, of our own accord, make ourselves worthy neither. We can't just be like, look, I'm going to beat my flesh until I said, no. We can't stand before His holy presence. So there must be a change of nature that only God is capable of bringing within us. And that's why in John, John puts it in his third chapter of his gospel, that we must be born again, that we must be born from above, or to put it the way that the apostles put it, that we must be made a new creation, one in which we are made perfect, made fit for a perfect world. The beginnings of this hope, at least from our perspective in time, it starts from the moment that we are born again. He gives us His Spirit, the down payment, the guarantee that what He promises, He will complete. And we see it, don't we, in believers, in Christians. Those who are believers, we are not the same person that we once were. You know, we're not where we want to be, but if we look back at the past, we're definitely not where we used to be. And that's glory to God. We are not yet perfect, but that seed planted in us grows with sanctification and it produces its fruit. That's the work that God has started in us and He will bring it to completion. And this is what is depicted for us in verse 2 and 3. What John is describing to us at first seems to be a new city. He's speaking of this new Jerusalem. But as John continues to write and express himself, You'll notice that the language changes from a place to a people. From a place to a people. I mean, after all, what is the point of a city if there is no people to occupy that city? Cities that are are uninhabited are ruins. God is not bringing down ruins. He's bringing down a city. A people adorned like a bride before her husband is the way that John describes it. And this is such a beautiful way to put it. This is such beautiful imagery. This is the church, the bride. And Christ our Lord is the husband. We tend to assume or think that God is borrowing from humanistic relationships to describe the the bond that Christ has with his church or with his people. But that's not true. The reality is that the whole concept of marriage is based upon the love of Christ. That love, the love that he had, he loved you even before the foundations of the world. Our marriage is based upon his love. Christ's love came first, then came marriage as a means to describe and to demonstrate the love of Christ for us. There are a few key words that I want to kind of just highlight for your attention for a moment that John uses to help indicate that this transformation has occurred. And obviously John is seeing, it, it's confusing in terms of using uh, tenses because he's obviously seeing of something that it hasn't yet come, but he's referring it to, it to it as though it has already happened. Right? So if you do time traveling, that's just going to mess you your head a bit. But I'm going to refer to it as, as, as he's referring to it, as though it has happened yet, it hasn't happened yet. It's something that we look forward to. And praise God that God puts it that way, right? Mm. That it hasn't happened, but He speaks of it as though it has already happened. 
And so one of those key words that he uses here is, uh, in, in relation to what we've been thinking upon here is this, this word, that the, and that is prepared. Prepared and adorned. These two words, these two tones reflect a work that God, through His Spirit, has caused in His people. It's been a change. There has been a change that has occurred, a change of nature, of what was once sinful man is now described as something precious, as a bride adorned for her husband. For those of us who have uh, taken the step of getting married, you know, me and Josh, AJ, Caesar, those of us who, I think, uh, I could speak for all of us, uh, we could all agree that there's one, one memory that stands above the rest on our, on our wedding day. Um, it stands out in, in the eyes, our mind's eye, above the rest. And that was the moment we saw our bride walk down the aisle for the first time. And for those of us who were there, like you guys who were a part of my, my, uh, my wedding that day, that special day, um, those who witnessed, if you paid close attention to either of our weddings, uh, and, and you took a glance, a peek at either me, Josh, or AJ, or whoever, if you looked at the groom, you would have noticed that we men would, were fighting back our tears of joy. If you looked at Josh, if you looked at myself, we were in tears. That overwhelming swelling of the heart, we could no longer contain our joy, our love at that moment. And though I had seen my wife days before that, that moment, before that day, I've seen her many, many days before that. It was like I had seen her for the first time. Beautiful as ever. Perfect in beauty. And she was mine. And though she was the same person, something had changed. Something was different. And in a similar way, and yet far more real and far more profound, this is how we, the church, are changed. Though we will be the same person, we will be made perfect to such a degree that at the same time, we won't be the same person. The word that is used for adorn could be used to describe, essentially, it's, it's putting things in order. I was going to use the analogy of, of, of pruning and cutting. Essentially, what, what it's trying to do is... is Put it back to, to its original purpose. If I, if I could give you an analogy, it would be like, I mean, especially as guys, we, we're dominating tonight. The guys, like, so assuming I'm just using stereotypes, see, we generally are the messier one, the messier gen, gender of the two. You know, we, we mess our rooms up, uh, with the exclusion of Josh, of course, is <laughs> a clean freak. No, but like, just generally, uh, you, you don't even have to be. Just if you see a, a room that's messy, like your own room, and, and you decide to just change everything up, you, you pack everything away, you tuck away your your bed, you, you you put your clothes away. Maybe you get some new furniture. You you change things up. You know, maybe you give it a fresh paint. Right? Everything's in it's in its place. All of a sudden, that that same room feels different. It, it, it's not no longer the, that it, it's the same space, but yet at the same time, it's it, it's not the same, mm -hmm. right? It's not the same. Not only does it look different, but it even functions different. 
Why? Because it's, it's serving its purpose. You actually want to be in that room now. As opposed to before when you see all the clothes and all the... It's, it's, it's anxiety and you just don't want to be there. Right? But it's the same room. It's, it's that idea. In a similar way, it, we see that that is what has happened in the church. Though we will be the same person, we'll be made perfect by the work of God. It is that we will be finally serving in our purpose. That why we were created was to, to worship God. And we see in scripture that man has fallen, but will be restored entirely on that glorious day. From corruptible to incorruptible, praise God. But it isn't just mankind. It isn't just mankind that has been made subjected to the bondage of sin, the effects of sin. In the same letter to the Romans, Paul tells us that even creation itself groans with anticipation for its release from its bondage to corruption. What was once paradise has become corrupted. The field that yielded its fruit and a crop, now it must be worked by the sweat of the brow. And as we look around the world and compare it to the Garden of Eden, you know, the life that would have been for the original parents, we could easily just see how far the corruption that Scripture speaks of has gripped this world. I mean, we all hate to work, right? <laughs> but praise God that it, it, it does not just, just tell us that how things used to be compared to how things are now, but it also gives us a hope of what is yet to come. You know, this world too will experience a much needed transformation by the same power and authority that transforms mankind. Changing him from a sinner to a saint. It will be the same power that transforms this world into a habitat that has been rid of its, its weeds, its corruption, its sin. It will turn to the paradise that it was originally purposed to be. A world fit for God and his people for a king and his kings for a father and his children for a husband and his bride heaven is not in the, in the clouds where we float around as spirits as we have been indoctrinated by our cartoons <laughs> heaven is where God is and God says he is coming down to earth to dwell with us. What a hope. That's what we see in verse 2. How it's described for us this wonderful picture of God's condescending. Much like how he did back in the day with the original parents in the garden. When God would walk with his creation in the garden. But there was, there has been this progression this development, if you look at Genesis and you look at Revelation and you put the, the first two and the last two chapters of the Bible, you see that there's been a progression. It, it starts off as a garden, it ends up as a city. It starts off as a small garden fit for a family of two and God. And now it's morphed into a city filled with a people that John says is too numerous for him to count. Another observation here that we could rejoice in is in the word dwelling place. In the Greek, it literally is to tabernacle. He will tabernacle with us. And there's this sense in that word that 
the way that John uses it that describes a, a, a permanency, that it's a permanent fixture, and indeed it is. The tabernacle that was resting, you know, the, the, you know, the presence of God in the Old Testament used to be carried by men set apart for the task of carrying that tabernacle around. You know, for 40 years they would travel around the desert and these men had to carry it. It had to be portable because they moved around. But now the presence of God in that moment, in that, in that period, in, that, in eternity, God in all His glory will no longer be contained in the holies of holies in a tabernacle or in a temple. Instead, what was contained is now exposed and needs not to be packed away and set up. No, it's found its permanent fixture in the city, in the midst of his people. And there's a wonderful image that John uses to help describe the experience that that will be like. Having God in the midst of his people, what does that do for the world? What does that do for human beings in particular? When God dwells with his people, John says that the mere presence of God in the midst of his people will be enough to remove pain and suffering. His presence will bring a joy and peace that is like that of a father who wipes away the tears of his children. I don't think that it's a literal thing where God is going to be there wiping away everyone's tears one by one. Right, But rather, being in the presence in our glorified bodies allows no room for anything that we could associate with pain and suffering. There is no more death. Praise God. And what a hope we have in Jesus. Even as we read these words, it's hard for us to even imagine or believe, like fully grasp because we are still in this body. But this is where it all is, is leading towards. Mm. He is working towards this plan that Christ came to establish at the cross. And we hinted at the idea that there are issues, yes, that need to be dealt with first. There are those loose ends that need to be tied up. And to that I want to turn to and with this I'll close the last few verses. Verse 5 to the end. And said, And he who has, was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable. As for murderers, the sexual immoral, the sorcerers, evildoers, uh, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We have noted the glorious hope that we have in Jesus. God in His mercy for us has ex exposed His plan for us, His will for us. And we, we began by posing this question that most people ask when we faithfully present the authority and the power and the sovereignty and the justice of God. You know, they call upon the injustice. that They, they say that God is unfair or God doesn't care or whatever it is. And they use this as proof that God doesn't exist because evil lurks still within this world. And they ask, what is God going to do about it? Well, John answers that question for us in this portion. 
who starts off with this statement, he who has he who was seated on the throne, he who was seated on the throne. Who is he who sits on the throne if not Christ? And what message is God trying to convey to us through the use of him sitting on the throne? That Jesus is the conquering king. He sits on the throne, giving the impression of rest because he says it's done. Much like how God rested in Genesis on the seventh day. It is the day of completion. He sits on the throne as king because it is done. He began by saying that Genesis, we began by saying that in Genesis and Revelation begins and ends with God. And that is what Christ says. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the sovereign God who reigns over history. And since he is king, he is the one that will deal with his enemies. You want to know what God is going to do with evil and all those evildoers? To those who have raped, to those who have killed and destroyed both humanity and creation alike. John says that all his enemies will be thrown in the lake of fire. Brothers, God is a God of justice. It is only the Christian worldview that grants us this hope. The atheist perspective cannot offer you justice. Those who do wrong get away with it. They get away with it under that atheistic perspective or worldview. But praise God that that is not the right view. That is not true at all. There is a God to whom we will give an account to one day. And all debts will be paid and paid to the nth degree. For the faithless who rejected his truth, or the murderers who despised his creation, or those who abused his gifts such as sex and sexuality, all those who lusted for power, all those who would rather worship other gods, all those who like to get ahead, all of them will burn. Justice will be served. And as verse 4 tells us, there is that one other enemy that needs to be put to rest, and that is the death of death. Death, there will be no more sorrow or pain, nor tears, because death will no longer have power. For sin has been cast out. The corruption that beacons death to come has been dealt with at the cross. The death of death occurred at the death of Christ. And so we see that the last two chapters of Revelation is the undoing of the third chapter of Genesis. If you read the first two chapters of Genesis and the last two chapters of Revelation, you got God's plan in nutshell. What He is working towards. But what about us? And with this I'll finish. Doesn't Romans tell us that we are no good, that none does good? No, not, not even one. Yes, that is right. And that is why this is such good news to us. Because though we too deserve to be thrown in that same lake of fire, God in His mercy has snatched us from those flames and gave us a new nature. He redeemed us. He gave us faith to believe. He gave us grace so that we may not boast, but if we boast, we boast 
only on the cross of Jesus. Because it was there at the cross where his justice for my sin was satisfied. It was there. The punishment that I deserved. He laid upon his son's back and broke him. He is perfectly just and gracious. There is no more death. John borrows from Isaiah 25 verse 8 when he speaks of God wiping away the tears of man. And so I think it's only fitting that I end by reading from Paul who also borrows from that very same verse. And he, he kind of marries it with another portion from Hosea to write these words filled with hope and it expresses the justice of our great God. And with this, we'll wrap up. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you, O God, that as we have meditated upon violence and the pain that it causes humanity, Lord God, at large, we instinctively realize, O God, that this is something that is unnatural, that this is something that should not be, and that this is something that is of a, of a poison, if you will, as some form of corruption. We thank you, O God, that in your word you have revealed that reality to us. You have explained it to us. But we give you praise and glory, Lord, that you don't only just tell us the bad news, but you offer us the good news. You offer us a hope that this world and all of its corruption will one day be, be rid of all that corruption. That at the cross you dealt with sin, Lord God. The sin that offended you and put me in position of your wrath. And that you sent your son to take that wrath on my behalf, O oh God. That I may one day walk with you as Adam did on the garden, Lord God. Where you will once again tread this earth, Lord, that you created. The home where you come, Lord God, and be with your people. A king with his kings. A father with his children. A husband his wife. This is the glorious hope we have. And we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for we don't deserve it. We place ourselves under the same category. We were once murderers, thieves, idolaters, adulterers. We were the worst of the worst, Lord God. And yet in your mercy, you one day changed us. We thank you for that hope. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to see that hope every day. In Jesus' name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. <clears throat>